Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, April 16th, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. This week, we're talking about chaos. You've probably heard about the butterfly effect, where small differences in initial conditions can yield wildly different outcomes. Take this morning, for instance. If I'd caught the first subway train that came into the station instead of having to wait for the second, my day, and potentially my life, would be entirely different. Today, award-winning Indian film director Shakar Kapoor debates the meaning of the universe and its chaos with the interdisciplinary astrophysicist Pete Hutt. Hutt's research at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study aims to reveal the structure of our physical world at the largest scales in time and space by studying the history of the universe. Their discussion took place as part of the Rubin Museum of Arts Brainwave Festival. I don't know if those words were mine. (laughs) What about the canary? I was surprised. um, It was like 3 a.m. I remember that. We used to have these conversations at 3 a.m. because I was in London trying to work out to see if I could make a film out of Foundation, Asimov's Foundation. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to study the universe and chaos. It's a time when you start to go beyond yourself. So I was actually listening and saying, my God, those are beautiful words. They could not have come out of me, but they must have. They're on my blog. But they did not come out of me, and that's what I want to talk to you about today also, is that sometimes... um, where does creativity lie? Somebody was just asking me today, said, talk to us about creativity. You can ask me the question. And the question that bothers every uh, creative being is, where does creativity lie? Does it lie within us, or do you access it from somewhere else? Mm-hmm. So we should talk about that. Um, but let me get back to this question of time. Um, I went up to look at, uh, uh, at the exhibition, and there's a statue of Shiva. And the statue of Shiva in the dance of creation and destruction. Now, the moment you say creation and destruction separated by the act of creation and the act of destruction, you are actually saying there is a linearity of time because you're separating. And yet, in the greatest of all concepts, you say Shiva is explaining the whole idea of chaos. Mm -hmm. And in the idea of chaos, there is no time. So where did the act of destruction, because I can say that to myself quite clearly, okay, by the time you observe the act of destruction, it does not exist. By the time you observe the act of creation, it does not exist. So yeah, it's an intellectual but almost emotional feel that I, by my act of of observation, am trying to still the universe to deal and connect the universe to my ego, to my mind, but it's gone. But, so now I've just made a statement, but it's gone, but was it ever there? That's the problem. The moment you start to say that time is not linear, if it's gone, was it ever there? And if it was not there, then how could it be gone? And how could there be an act of destruction and an act of construction and creativity if there's no linearity? Mm-hmm. And we accept that there's no linearity, so there's no action. There's no so in the kind of things that we try and explain, this, what we call in Hinduism, this, the whole churning, mm-hmm. in that churning, is there a separation that we can observe? 
or does not, it does not exist. Over to you. <laughs> well, those are all great questions, of course. I mean, the idea of linear time, of having a past and a very small present and a long future, uh, as if it was a, a one-dimensional line of time, that is, of course, what we normally use every day as clock time. That is what we use in physics, in scientific um, discussions. Actually, the whole story is becoming amazingly precise because uh, when I started as a student in uh, astrophysics a few decades ago, we didn't know how old the universe was. We knew it was maybe 20 billion years, maybe 10 billion years, maybe a little bit different, that's sort of roughly the age. But now we know that the universe is 13.7 plus or minus 0.1 billion years old. So I know the age of the universe better than the age of most of my friends. <laughs> there are very few people to whom I know within 1% the, the age. So science becomes more and more accurate and more and more precise within the scientific framework. But we are going to talk today about what we can say about the framework and whether we can go beyond the framework and what the whole notion of a framework means. And if I go back and I say I want to be really, really empirical, science is empirical, if I really want to go to direct experience of what we can directly measure and experience, then we can never experience the past. We can never experience the future. So even though in our theory there is this whole long timeline of billions of years and this very, very small moment of now, as far as our experience goes, we are always in the now. And that is uh, one thread that we started talking about. What can you do with this now which we always find ourselves in? And within the now, all kinds of things appear. The memories of the past appear in the now. The anticipation of the future appears in the now. The idea of a timeline appears in the now. But the only thing we know about what appears really is the presence of appearance. We know that this appearance, there is something present here. Some appearance is present. Everything else is theory. It is not direct experience. I want to tell you that one of the big conversations that I used to have was this idea that since then I've moved on, but I can tell you what. <laughs> there was, there was a fact that he would say everything is perception and observation and only perception and observation makes it true and it, otherwise it's not true, it does not exist. So I said, you know what, I'm going to hit my hand very hard against the wall and it's pain and blood. And you're saying that if I don't observe it and I don't notice it, it does not exist. Well, that's also true in a way that it won't exist if you don't in this idea of duality. I can tell you where it came from. It's been something I've been struggling and I guess that's why I became a, a storyteller. Is uh, when I was about 10 years old, we used to, um, in Delhi, for those of you that come from Delhi, I'm sure some of the head that it wasn't polluted and I used to, we used to sleep outside on, on, on the terraces in summer, keep it cool. And so you could see the sky, there was no light pollution, there was no pollution, and we could see the blanket of the universe out there. And it was about the time when we are taught in physics that everything's something. And if it's only something, it's only something if you can measure it. So you have started to learn that the measurable existence is measurable, and if it's not measurable, then it does not exist. Um, so I used to lie there and say, okay, so if it exists and if it's measurable, I can imagine how far it goes. And I would imagine, imagine, and then I would break down and I would start to cry. And I would talk to my father, who was a pediatrician, and said, 
how long, where, where, where does this thing go? And he would say it goes on forever. So I would try and imagine forever. And when you try and imagine forever, you're in deep shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And when you try and imagine forever, that's when you start to create stories. So at 10 year old, as a 10 year old, I would sit there or lie there crying with, with, with frustration. And finally, I created a story for a guy with an ax. And he was a guy with an ax. And our whole, the universe that I could see was a tip of that ax. And it would take forever to come down and break this tree. And the tree, this universe would explode. Except that in another universe, within those atoms, there was another guy with an ax. And that was gone. And people count sheep to go to sleep. And I would count the number of times the ax would hit the tree. And I came up with the fact that all I could do was tell stories to connect myself to forever. And that's why I became a stop. But tell me what the truth is. Still, I'm asking myself that if I stand in forever, there is no distance. Mm -hmm. If I go and stand forever, I'm everywhere. And yet, you tell me in physics, not you, but physics tells me that there is distance. There is, if there's distance, there's linearity of time because it takes moment, uh, one moment to the other point of moment. So we are contextualized by moments. Tell me if I'm going too fast, but everything's now coming in. There has to be two points. And forever doesn't have two points, it has one point. So then all existence is at one point, so there's no time, there's no distance. And there's a, there's a duality. In one, one way there is two points, and in another way I look at it, then there's only one point. Bring those two together for me and tell me how does that happen, how, why? Am I, is that a valid question? Right, so I'm not the only one that wonders about it, right. Okay. Well, you give beautiful homework. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my, my memory uh, at around uh, age of 10 or so is a little bit less, uh, less romantic, I guess, lying under the stars. But it is somewhat similar. I remember uh, my parents were members of the Dutch Reformed Church in Holland where I grew up. And I remember that the sermons were terribly long. And sometimes during the sermons, I started thinking about uh, the meaning of eternity. <laughs> and it was inspired by the sermons, I'm sure. <laughs> but the idea that you can have a very long time and then twice that or ten times that and a thousand, and you could go on. I mean, at some point, it really becomes mind-boggling. So uh, it is an interesting experiment to so do. So eternity exists in boredom. <laughs> okay. Well, boredom right. and chaos, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> All these things touch upon each other. But the meaning of existence is a very interesting question. Uh, like if you have a dream or, or a movie, your area, uh, at the same time, you can say within the story something exists. You can ask if you switch on a light switch in a movie, you can say, why uh, does the light go on? You say, yes. And what was the reason? Because you hit the light switch. But of course, the real reason from the point outside the movie is the light of the projector and the uh, filmmaker who dreamt up the uh, movie, etc. So the question of what exists, I don't think you can ask it without a framework. Within the framework of physics, we can say very precisely what exists and how it exists. But outside frameworks, the whole notion of existence, I think, is completely up for grabs. And um, again, if you really go back to your experience independently of any particular framework which you want to bring in theoretically, then I think 
you have to start with the appearance of something which appears to exist, or even the presence of the appearance of what exists. So the presence is twice removed and in a way more pure, more essential than the notion of existence. Does everybody get that? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine me sitting at 3 a.m. reading his emails and saying, now, okay, what? I can, I, I can actually, that I, I guess there's something I do understand in a simplistic way. And what I do try and understand and, and tell me is that the only way you can answer these questions, the only way you can understand what we effectively is measuring the universe, and you cannot actually have a measure of the universe from within the universe. From within the universe, can, you can only be the universe. And the moment you go outside the universe to measure it, you can come back with data and say, this is how I measure the universe. But there is no outside of the universe because it is all the universe. And so I come back to another contradiction. I have to go outside the universe to measure the universe, but there is no outside. So it's a theoretical outside. So I go into a theoretical outside the universe and come back with theoretical data of the inside and I come up with, that's how it all exists. But why does my mind go outside the universe and why does my ego go outside the universe? So, the question of duality. Mm -hmm. Can I go into duality? Is that right? The question of duality is the fundamental problem that my mind constantly needs a singular definition of everything. And so let me see, if in, let's examine that scientifically. This is the theory. I'm going to postulate something. That a problem is that the, the ego needs to define. And in definition, it confines. And yet, existence is many definitions. And you cannot confine it to one definition. So the idea that the illusion is as real as the non-illusion. And they both coexist at the same time. And, and what we are not able to get is there is no one definition. So come back to the original. If you cannot measure it, it cannot exist. The fact is, if you cannot measure it, it can also exist. But you can also measure it when you look at it from a different point of view. All right. Fantastic. I can explain that in a poem. I can explain that in a story. I can sit here and tell you a story that you'll get all of this. But then when I look at it from a scientific point of view, and I look at it from a logical point of view, because I've been taught we live in the age of reason from a reasonable point of view, I come back to Pitt and say, tell me, Pitt, what am I talking about? <laughs> like you, I also don't remember what I said, and said or wrote a few years ago. So about this existence business, <laughs> uh, I think if you can measure it, it also doesn't exist outside the framework, yet it exists within the framework. So it depends on which stance uh, you take there, definitely. So the whole question of going beyond duality, that is something which, uh, which interests me very much. But uh, science doesn't have much to say about going beyond duality yet. If you compare science... Sorry, I'm going to stop you, but the reason yeah. I'm asking is because he's also a Buddhist. And that's why I'm asking you this question. Because you live in that duality. You're a scientist and you're a Buddhist. Now tell me. 
Well, uh, I'm not a card-carrying Buddhist, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do have strong sympathies with a Buddhist way of looking at the world, as well as Taoist, as well as um, Hinduists, certainly the non-dual uh, Advaita, Vyant, Vedanta type views, as well as many aspects of uh, uh, Sufi, Islam, medieval Christian uh, mysticism. Whenever in a tradition people really go deeply into their own experience and find something real, uh, that for me is very interesting and that is equally experimental for me as science. And the difficulty is that when scientists have a dialogue with people from uh, these ancient traditions, uh, the main problem is that science is so young. Science is only 400 years old, we just got started, it's only 10 generations, that's not much. So if you have a dialogue between science and Buddhism or science and Taoism, in a way, uh, it is not yet, it's science is like the teenager on the block who is a little bit excited about all the new knowledge they have. It hasn't really been shaken down, it hasn't really been sorted out very much. So no wonder that there is some uh, mismatch there. And to give you one example of the mismatch here, science is very proud that it is empirical. Science says we base everything on measurement, not speculation, but measurement and uh, experienced uh, experiments. But whenever you do an experiment, whenever you have an experience, there is a subject having an experience of an object. I see uh, a wall, I hear a sound, whatever. And science has for 400 years focused on the objective side of experience. So everything is objectified and the subject and the interaction has been sort of shoved out of the way. But I think in the next 400 years, the subject and the interaction will get uh, equal attention. So we really should talk again in another 400 years to <laughs> get a more balanced view. And the reason that I think it is going to happen is that there are a few cracks in the wall of object objectivism, of only object studies. Now, when, when we can measure the, uh, the brain, uh, can map it through fMRI, etc., we can make a dictionary between objective blood flow and subjective experience, so the subject has to come in. Also, in quantum mechanics, we know that there is no objective state of an atom or an uh, uh, electron or a photon. It depends on how you measure, your subjective choice of how you measure it, what you can find in principle. There is no really objective state. And also, if we try to make robots, uh, we talked about Asimov. Uh, 50 years ago, uh, Asimov envisioned a world of robots, not, of, not so much cell phones and computers. He talked about ro robots, and I think they still were using microfiche and stuff. So he didn't foresee the computer revolution, but uh, people were convinced 50 years ago that we all would be walking around and robots would surface. And where are the robots? And I think the reason that robots can at best vacuum the floor in a clumsy way still uh, is that we don't understand the nature of the subject. We only understood the function of the heart after we understood, uh, after we could build a pump. So understanding how to build a pump makes you understand how the heart pumps blood. Unless we really understand the uh, subjective nature, the subject nature of a subject, rather than describing it as an object, as science does, if we really understand the nature of a subject, then we can create a subject in our image and create 
an, um, an robot which really can autonomously function. So I think I see these cracks in the wall of the pure objective view of uh, science. So I think it's a little bit early to really compare them. So where does chaos come into this? Then you talked about chaos and said find meaning in chaos. I'd put it the other way around. To find chaos beyond meaning and to let chaos meaning go and let the whole idea of meaning, you know, uh, it's like the weight of knowledge sits and sinks the idea of wisdom and, and takes away and we, we sit and to go beyond meaning in what is chaos, I, I, it's, so let me be completely vulnerable here and see what happens. Um, as a kid, I used to live here in London and I went to London, and not here, London, and um, I went to the London Zoo and there was a tiger there and I was feeling really bad that the tiger was brought from India and put into a zoo. And you know, tigers pace up and down. And I started to walk up and down the cage and as I walked this way, the tiger would come this way. And at one point I realized that there was no, there was no time lag. The tiger and I were walking together. And I tried to outdo the tiger. I would just suddenly stop. But the tiger already stopped. And I tried to walk and I said, what is this tiger sensing in me? And to me, that was the fundamental nature of chaos. And I thought of Shiva at that moment and I still, and I was looking at the statue of Shiva and I was looking at that dance and I was saying, if you try and dissect that dance between creation and destruction and all the little intersections in between, and you say, I will follow and dance with Shiva and I will see those steps, it is chaos, so chaotic that you cannot dance with Shiva. Yet, there is a point in which you can get into harmony with Shiva, like the tiger and I got into harmony, and you could dance with Shiva if you got into harmony. And then it's not a question of following and understanding the pattern. It's a question of finding harmony. And so you go from structure, so you go beyond, from beyond meaning and beyond structure to chaos where you just let it go and then find harmony and if you get that connect into harmony you are living in chaos but in, a, in the harmonious nature of the universal chaos. Mm -hmm. What the hell am I talking about? Please tell me. <laughs> Sorry, I'm asking a scientist. Does that mean anything to guys what I'm talking about? Yeah, so tell me what I'm talking about then. These are just words, right? Or are they more than words? I'm sorry? I guess it's not why letting go is chaos. It is, there is no chaos without letting go. Yeah? Sorry. I know it's not question time yet. I actually want Pete to come in because I find this fascinating still. I hit my hand on a, on a wall and I, I hurt. And yet I know that I don't hurt because the wall doesn't exist and my hand doesn't exist and I don't exist. And there was no time difference. I mean, I need that force, right? So there has to be linear time from that idea of this hand to the wall for, to create the force that I break my fingers on. And yet there's no linear time. It's fascinating. And I can get 
great stories out of it. But how do I perceive it? How do I experience that? And when I experience it, how do I live in the duality? You're the scientist. <laughs> right. Well, what you just described is a very good description of scientific research. When people think about scientific research, they think about something very logical and very rational. But to really get a new idea, to be stuck somewhere and then to grope in the dark and suddenly get a new idea, this creativity from which a mathematician gets a new mathematics idea or a physicist a new physics idea or any scientist, I think is very similar to the creativity in art. The main difference is that after you get an idea, then the way that the scientist tests what comes out is by doing a calculation, doing an experiment, looking at internal consistency. That is different. Uh, artists have different ways to test it. But to say that science is rational, it would be like saying that sports is about timekeeping. And if you run a marathon, somebody has to use a stopwatch, and at the end you see with a stopwatch who won. But sports is not about stopwatches. That's just sort of like the last step. Mm -hmm. So I think science is not about, real, not about rationality. That's only the last step to check uh, what you had done. So I think science is in fact much more like art, and much more, what we are doing is much more similar than what most people uh, think. I think you said it. <laughs> I can't get that. No, no, that, that's absolutely right. Sport and running is not about stopwatches, but at one point we need to impose a stopwatch on it to make it valid for ourselves. And so the question really becomes is, why do we need a stopwatch to make it valid? And surely that's the question. Why, why is it just not sport? Mm -hmm. So the validity, science is making us what is the validity we need out of science? It's strange. Why do we need the stopwatch? I think what is special about science, and maybe that is really unique, is the way it builds over the generations. I mean, now that you called me a Buddhist, <laughs> which is fine, it's a reasonable approximation, uh, I can take a Buddhist, <laughs> a Buddhist metaphor. In Buddhism, uh, there is the idea of a Buddha and a Bodhisattva. And a bodhisattva postpones becoming a Buddha in order to help other people. And if I may take some liberty here with a, a comparison, you can say that the scientist also postpones the ultimate understanding of the nature of reality in order to really go very slow and to hand something to the next generation and the next, next generation to build on. I think a big difference between a scientist and a philosopher, for example, is that most philosophers try, or at least traditionally tried, in their own lifetime to get a whole picture of the meaning of everything. Whereas a scientist takes what has been really well established in theory and experiment, in the dance of theory and experiments together, and then add a little bit to that. And every scientist has their own idea about what they understand about reality, but what they produce is just a little extra layer and really test it, go very slowly, and then the next generation can build upon that. So it's a postponement of trying to figure out what is really real. So maybe the scientists are the bodhisattvas of our age. Yeah, that's true. Well, <laughs> I... I <laughs> Go on like this. We're ready for questions whenever. Am I? Is that all right? We can do it anytime. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I just. Uh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So this is what we have to do. Um,
We have microphones on either side of the house, and so um, that this doesn't become totally an example of chaos, um, and that we can extract a little meaning out of it, we'll do it in some semblance of order, and I'll try and be as fair as I can. Um, so uh, let's have, I know, so you had your hand back up the second to last row, and then let's take you, yes, yes, keep your hand up though, sir, because, um, and the mic will come to you. So you can stay seated. So let's have the first question, if you don't mind. Let's have the house lights up a little more, if you don't mind. Uh, you, you kept speaking to uh, time as being either accelerating or happening timelessly. But we see, like, entropy always happens on an accelerating curve. No matter how fast you travel through the universe, we experience time as moving forward. So where's the value in looking at it as timeless in a scientific mind rather than just as a purely philosophical exercise? Um, I'm going to say something to that, but that's obviously a question for Pete. But I would say, for me, I question the assumption that that's scientific. I question the very assumption, and I ask myself constantly, is, is linearity a construct of my ego? Because fundamentally, what I need, I exist because I do. Right? And so there is a a, a fundamental process. I do, therefore something gets done. The relationship between do and done is the fundamental nature of my ego because if it doesn't get done, then my doing and done, where's my ego existing? It exists between these two points of doing and done. And the only way I can separate the doing and the done is by linearity of time. So I question the, that fact that is it just a construct of my own ego for my ego to know that it exists. But that's still philosophical. I agree. But I'm questioning the fact that, that you are assuming that one is right. But from Pierre. Yes, I, I agree with Shekhar. There are a whole lot of assumptions. And when I said science is young, I really mean that. A hundred years ago, we had a very different view of the nature of matter, uh, let alone the general nature of reality. And it may very well be that a few hundred years from now, we again, we have a very different picture. It's very unlikely that the present snapshot of science is what science will grow into. My guess would be that in another 400 years, we will understand much more about the subject pole of experience. Maybe in another 1,000 years, we will reach timelessness within science, if science keeps growing. But at the moment, we are not there yet. So timelessness within the framework of science doesn't have any meaning. So when I talk about it and when Shaker and I discuss that, that is outside the current um, uh, picture of science. Doesn't mean that it has to be philosophical or at least not philosophical in a speculative or theoretical way because we can work with our direct experience. We can use our own life as a laboratory and we don't need tools. We all have our own um, consciousness to work with already. And if you really ask ourselves, do we experience timelessness or do we experience time? At that moment that we ask that question, we can compare notes and anybody can do that. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series and the rest of the Science in the City program, like our Girls' Night Out series and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support the Science in the City program today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. 
Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.